0: back with another episode of gladiator for europe i'm abram and today i'm joined by liam hey and uh we watched true detective season two it's an episode title you know what it is it was good wasn't it uh
1: it was better than i remember especially now that i understand what went into it
0: it's a show that definitely is better in a rewatch than like the first time around because it's a very dense show and uh i completely miss like half of the shit that goes in this
1: uh, I think that if it didn't follow the first season of True Detective, which was such a uh, game changer, I think that if it was a standalone, it would probably be remembered as some kind of cult classic today.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we're not going to do spoilers on this episode because I kind of want people to watch this. We're going to spoil the entire first episode, but we're not going to go into like any details.
1: And also because the plot is so complicated, if we were going to spoil everything, this would be a three-hour episode.
0: Um, in the off chance you're listening to this and you've never watched any season of True Detective, I'll just give you a brief outline. It's eight episodes because it's HBO. First episode, they find a dead body. Last episode, David after did it. The episodes in between is like a mixture of character drama and like solving the mystery and like uncovering things they really shouldn't have been uncovering.
1: Yeah, and what really makes True Detective unusual and celebrated is that unlike so many other cop shows, there's always... A little bit of a a mystical kind of element or at least a very a hint of of the occult not necessarily occult meaning supernatural but just in this uh, the sense of deep secrets that these people uncover
0: don't feel bad if you haven't watched the show or you have no interest watching the show you'll still probably get something out of this episode but let's get into it like for real all right unlike the first season Which you know starred Matthew McConaughey and uh, the other guy Woody Harrelson. That season had two true detectives, or two detectives that become true detectives by the eighth episode. This show has four, so double the cast, and it has much, much more detailed mystery. So uh, off to a bad start, I could say, but you know, let's keep going.
1: And the other big difference is that instead of being set in this small town, I think in Louisiana. This one is right here in Los Angeles, one of the biggest cities in the world, just incredibly busy. And I think that that kind of busyness really carries through into the plot as well.
0: Yeah. And unlike the first season and the third season, which are like set in like three different decades and cut back and forth, this is just in real time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So let's introduce our characters. First, you have Colin Farrell, who is a detective for Vinci PD, very small city.
1: Very small.
0: We'll get into that later. Uh, There's Vince Vaughn, who is a former gangster and now runs the Poker Room in Vinci. So, you know, he's a gangster gone legit. Yeah. You have Rachel McAdams, who plays a detective for...
1: Sheriff's deputy.
0: Yeah, and she works for, like, a other part of LA. And then you have Taylor Kitsch, who is, like, highway patrol. And he's somebody who, like, gets roped into this later on. And you have the murder victim, Ben Casper, who is the city administrator for Vinci, where Colin Farrell works. Yeah. So yeah, in the end of the first episode, Taylor Kitsch, driving down the highway, sees this body, calls it in. Rachel McAdams shows up. A little while later, Colin Farrell shows up. And this starts the investigation to what happens here. And of course, meanwhile, it turns out that uh, Vince Vaughn, also knows this murder victim and is also doing his own detective work to figure out what's going on. So, out of our four main characters, only two are actually detectives. So we're not really going to talk about the main plot at all, but we are going to talk about a little about the characters and what kind of happens in the first episode. So let's get a little more detailed into that. So Colin Farrell, who is he? What's his deal?
1: He is the classic uh, put upon post post-9-11 American man. You know, he's uh we find out that. He and his wife are divorced, but they've had a very messy relationship for a long time for very uncomfortable reasons, and he's got a really poor relationship with his son, who is this, you know, poor little chubby nerd kid, plays D&D, and he can't connect with his son, and he worries that his son isn't able to stand up for himself.
0: Yeah. He's a very classic kind of cop character. The detective character you would see in, like, I don't know, The Shield or in YPD Blue, you know what I mean? Yeah. A very off-the-mold character. You know, he's like, he gets drunk a lot, he has a bad relationship with his wife, he has an estranged son, he's kind of crooked, even though he kind of means well. Yeah.
1: And we find out the reason that he is crooked is the fact that he has a relationship with Vince Vaughn, the former gangster.
0: Yeah, and Vince Vaughn these days is a man who has turned a new leaf and has gone legit. Kind of. I mean, he runs the poker room in this crooked city, and we'll find out later that uh, everything in the city is kind of crooked. You know, ostensibly, he is like a, a real businessman, and one of the things that he's been doing to be a real businessman is try buy a plot of land along the new high-speed rail that's being developed in California. Yeah, plan is, he's going to buy this land, the railway's going to be built, land's going to appreciate in value, he's going to be a millionaire 10 times over.
1: Yeah, it's a very 19th century kind of scheme.
0: Unfortunately for him, the man who was supposed to buy this plot of land for him is uh, the murder victim. Ben Casper. Yeah, so he handed Ben Casper his money. A couple of days later, he disappears. First episode involves him trying to figure out where he's gone. And then at the very end of the episode, find out, oh, he's dead. And we don't know what your money is.
1: He's not just dead. Uh, we find out that his... Eyes have been burned out, and somebody obliterated his genitals with the shotgun blast.
0: Ooh, terrible way to go out. Oh, yeah. But these two, Colin Farrell and Vince Vaughn, are kind of the main true detectives of the season. Yeah. They have like a, a back and forth and, you know, exchanging information because one of the things of being a crooked cop and a former gangster is uh, you have a rapport going.
1: And there's a kind of cool dynamic going here because, you know, Colin Farrell is a cop. But because he's indebted to this former criminal, he's really being pulled in two different directions as he tries to solve this crime.
0: Right, because we learn this is a very corrupt city, and the city administrator, his murder, is going to bring people who are asking all sorts of questions to the city that the mayor does not want people asking.
1: And uh, in the very first episode, in the first few minutes, Vince Vaughn actually gets Colin Farrell to beat up a reporter who's been exposing this corruption. And as the series goes on, we find out that the city will actually go much, much farther than that to hide evidence of corruption.
0: I just want to throw something in here for uh, anybody who's unfamiliar, is um, every season of True Detective is based on a true story. In the first season, that means like absolutely nothing. It's like just kind of flavor. In this season, there really is like a true story that is being told in this show. And we're going to get into that much later And, um, other two detectives, they have their role, but they are not as important.
1: And to be completely honest, I, I, yeah, I think that, we'll get into them, but I think that both of these characters the show could probably do without.
0: I'll disagree here a little. I think, uh, Rachel McAdams, even though she does have a small role, she benefits the overall plot to a good amount. Taylor Kish, no. Completely useless. Just, like, cut him out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Let's get into Taylor Kish first, because I I hated this guy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He
1: is a highway patrolman and former member of the Black Mountain Mercenary Company, this notorious private military corp that, if anyone can probably tell, is a clear stand-in for Blackwater. And the fact that he's part of the Highway Patrol at all, we find out, is the cause of some controversy.
0: First off, this actor... I, I mean, he's been in stuff. I've seen him in stuff. He's always bad. Like, he was in Battleship, that awful movie. He was John Carter of Mars. And, like, he was, like, just a complete <laughs> blank slate the entire movie.
1: Absolutely. He's in the the Sam Worthington mold of when you just need, like, a vaguely handsome white dude, you get him.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, they give him a lot of material to work with, and he does not deliver.
1: No, no.
0: Now, we find this out in the first episode, so it's not a huge spoiler, but um he's like a extremely heavily closeted gay man
1: yeah he's got this it, yeah he's got a hot girlfriend and he has to pop a boner pill before he can do anything
0: i don't want to linger too much about him i just want to kind of like just say what he is and like never speak about him again because he doesn't really do much or anything but this is like the worst part of the show the show came out in 2014 and having like a super closeted gay man and not really having that plot detail like work into the overarching story in any way it's like very off-putting I mean, all that happens is um, one time he has to interview, like, a gay guy to, like, just get clues for the case or whatever. And um, he acts awkward the whole time. And that's it. That's the entire payoff for uh, this, like, closeted gay subplot.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. And the, probably the, the most memorable part about his character is the fact that he has this implied incestuous relationship with his mother. But they never explain how that abuse has anything to do with or how it intersects with the fact that he's also secretly gay.
0: Yeah, it's a letdown. It's very weird. Let's get into Rachel McAdams' character. Because she's a little bit better, but she doesn't have as much screen time.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. She, she's a very a very California type of character.
0: Obviously, she is a detective and she's a woman cop. They don't really do the typical woman cop thing of like, oh, she's a badass and she can like kick anybody's ass. Her vulnerability of being like much shorter and like weaker than... Any kind of thug that attacks her is explored in the show, right? And is done well, yeah.
1: Which is kind of interesting. We, what's interesting about her also is that we find out that she was raised in a cult. If anybody listened to our last episode with James, it might seem a little bit familiar. These kinds of groups, and that she had some kind of traumatic experiences that we explore later in the series in this cult that are clearly uh, compelling a lot of reactions throughout the whole show.
0: Yeah. She's a very California character. Um, let me put it this way. Her name is Annie, which is short for Antigone, which is a Greek god. So, yeah. <laughs> very L.A. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about L.A. a little bit, because this show is very L.A. They don't do very much in downtown L.A., which is nice. They go around like in the periphery, and like that's where are doing most of their shooting. But like, so many of the plot points in the show are just like, here's a thing that goes on in L.A., like her being raised in like, a yeah, heavy Yeah, community. yeah, yeah.
1: No, definitely. And what I thought was funny is that even though most cop shows, probably an outright majority, are filmed or even set in L.A., they rarely explore all of the weird aspects of this town the way this show does.
0: Yeah, and I appreciated that a lot.
1: Oh, definitely. And I would say if you want to get to know L.A., that alone makes this a really fun show to watch. Because it does a gr- even though it's probably eight years old now, seven years old, it does a great job of capturing what this town feels like.
0: The only downside is it looks ugly. Like not LA, I mean the show looks (laughs) ugly. Yeah. So this is 2014. This is back when everything had this color grading where they boosted the yellows and the highlights and boosted the blues and the shadows. You've probably seen this a lot in like movie posters. That's where like it's the most obvious We just have that like yellow and blue contrast. Just like Google like yellow and blue movie poster and like you'll see like thousands of these. But yeah, that's what the show looks like. And because it's LA, so everything is like concrete, just all the concrete becomes yellow or brown and just like has this very monochromatic look the entire time. And it doesn't look good, which is, you know, unfortunate because they occasionally go into like the hills in LA and you know have these like sort of more upscale glamorous locations, you know, like there's like mansions and like there's like a very high class uh, like therapist's office and stuff. And Everything just kind of looks ugly.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Uh, The only pretty part of the show is uh, all of these long uh, drone shots of the freeways at night, which are funny because now since the show came out, basically every movie and show set in L.A. has has had those obligatory shots.
0: Since 2014, commercial drones became, like, a thing. Like you can get a drone with like a camera for like a thousand bucks now, so basically every movie and TV show can afford them, which is cool. There's drone shots in basically literally every movie and TV show now.
1: No, yeah, and so every tiny little horror movie now can have like you know a, a drone chasing the protagonist to the woods, which is cool.
0: And um, I know you don't really like the fact that I all they do is like um, highway shots.
1: I think they're I think they're pretty. I think it's just that when you have three of them in every single episode, it gets a little bit tiresome.
0: Yeah. Obviously, we know why establishing shots exist because you gotta, like, just do a shot, here's the location, look how vast LA is, and then, okay, th- we've established that LA's a big place, now we go to, like, the close-up scene of the characters. Got it. Unfortunately, they just do the same shot every single time.
1: Again, and again, the most charitable take you could have on that is that it's kind of reminding you that, like, really all of this dark corruption, and as we're gonna find out, violence, is because of this constant circulation of capital, which happens primarily through LA's incredibly complicated freeway network.
0: So overall, I think this was a good season. I would say the first season was like a solid nine out of 10 for me. Like it was an admittedly kind of tired premise, but like executed, like as good as you can do it. This one, the premise, it has like a lot of tired elements, but also has like a lot of you know very complicated concepts that are interesting and like new to me, but there's like so much going on, it is not executed as well as you would like. So I would give this I don't know, like a, a seven out of ten, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, like, like I said, uh the reason it was basically panned upon release was just because the first season set such a high bar and also set people up for a different a different tonal experience. And because this is a much more complicated show because this is much less mystical, and because there's a much more complicated story, it wasn't what fans expected. And so at the time, basically, the TV journalism industry wrote it off.
0: This really is just like a very generic cop show in a lot of ways. I enjoyed it. But yeah, like, if you've seen like The Shield, you kind of get it. You know, there's like new ideas, but like, there's so many old ideas that, yeah, if you're somebody who's like reviewing TV shows and movies and stuff, like and you watch this, it's like, we've seen all this before, B- and just kind of move on. Speaking of moving on, let's move on from this. You know, you get it. You get what the story is. It's like, you know, four detectives trying to figure out like who killed this guy, and uh, there's a lot of rich people trying to figure that out for themselves as well. We don't really want to talk about the plot of the show at all. Instead, we want to talk about the inspirations for the plot beats in the show. So I mentioned Finchie earlier, Vinci is not a real place. It's like a, a fake city invented for the show. It is based on a real city named Vernon in California, which is just like, you know, on the periphery of LA. Uh,
1: not, yeah, I would say not just on the periphery, it's directly adjacent to downtown.
0: Let's just compare what happens in the show to what happens in real life. We might give away a little bit what happens in the show, so apologies, but I assure you it is not going to like detriment your watching experience if you haven't watched the show. The story of Vinci the fictional city in the season true detective is a story of an industrial city with around a hundred residents, all handpicked by the current mayor, who like previous mayors is a direct descendant of the city's founder from like a hundred years ago.
1: A Basque immigrant who bought all this farmland, which very quickly became industrialized.
0: The likely next mayor is the mayor's son. Like this is a political dynasty. It's a sort of the deal going on here. And the mayor's son is somebody who has a passion for prostitutes. And, you know, of course, you have the corrupt city manager, Ben Casper, the murder victim, who is discovered dead on the side of the road two days after the news of the potential criminal probe into the city, you know. And this is what kicks off the entire series. The news of the probe and then Casper showing up dead. Now let's get into Vernon, the real place. So the story of Vernon is is an industrial city with around 100 residents. All until recently, handpicked by a corrupt mayor, who, like all previous mayors, is a direct descendant of the city's founder.
1: Yeah, and even though even though it only has 100 residents, it's not a small city, because it's full of factories, which means that day-to-day, it has something like 60,000 people
0: and lit, the working there And the next any given line time. for mayor is the mayor's son. And uh, the mayor's son, in real life, was uh, convicted for sex crimes, and of course, you have the corrupt city administrator, who is discovered dead lying face down in a park two days after news of a criminal probe into him. Again, you know, these are like just pulling details out of the headlines. Like, so this city is unique. Oh, yes. Liam just said it's an industrial city, so there's tens of thousands of people working there, but only like 100 residents.
1: Yeah. And, and, and as a consequence of that, it has the highest crime rate of any city in California
0: and there is literally no other city that exists that has this. There's plenty of cities that have like 100 residents. I mean, they're not cities, they're towns, but they're incorporated. You know, they have their own mayor and sheriff and fire department and elections and shit, but they're like cities of like 100 people, maybe like 110 if like there's a store in town that people commute to. Usually even less like daytime because people usually leave the towns. It's like Nighttime population of 100, daytime population of 50, you know what I mean? This is a completely unique situation where, like, it is actual city with, like, tens of thousands of people going through it, but, like, only a handful of actual residents. So, we're gonna read these LA Times articles that explore this fact and kind of shed light on how the fuck this happened. So, first article that I found is from 1989. Bruce Malkenhorst
1: ends his daily drive to work in Vernon, an industrial hamlet at the southeast edge of Los Angeles. The surroundings are bleak. Manufacturing plants and slaughterhouses, harsh odors, trucks and rumbling trains. It's a city of five square miles and only 90 full-time residents.
0: So yeah, very tiny town. Basically nobody lives there. And also like a town, like trucks and cars drive through all the time. And nobody driving through would realize this is actually an incorporated city that is not just like a section of Los Angeles proper.
1: Right. And like I said, it's right next to downtown. If you're driving from downtown LA to East Los Angeles, you're going to drive through. Vernon may be an ugly town or a gritty town, but it's Malkinhurst's town. And he loves it for good reason. In 14 years as city administrator, he's become the highest paid official in California with a yearly salary of $162,000.
0: And this is $1989, just so we're clear.
1: I think i make a lot of money here, but if I go back into private industry, I'd make $300,000, $400,000, said with the gruff, breezy self-assurance that his critics call arrogance.
0: I don't think that's true. <laughs> this guy is smart. He's like a, a real piece of shit. But he is very lucky because he is not somebody who would excel in the private industry.
1: Yeah, and we will find out that the entire reason why this strange city exists is because it's making a ton of money for the people involved. And as we'll see, there are perks as well. The dapper, 54-year-old Malkenhorst tools past the dusty lots and chain-link fences of Vernon in a city-leased 89 Cadillac, gold rings flashing on each hand, a gold band dangling from his wrist. He travels to conferences on city governments in Palm Springs, San Diego, San Francisco, and his expense accounts and travel budgets alone total $48,000. Like all Vernon employees, Malcolm Horse puts in a four-day week. He devotes his Fridays to golf.
0: What the hell is it with rich guys in golf? If I was making this much money, I would just sit home and watch TV. I guess all these guys love the great outdoors.
1: And also, you know, if you're discussing nefarious activities, you've got more privacy than at like a restaurant or something.
0: That's true. At the same time, he has stirred enmity and alienation with almost reckless indifference. While authorizing his own hefty raises, he has slashed the size of Vernon's police and fire departments in half. He takes pride in his reputation as a tight-fisted fiscal manager and almost intractable negotiator.
1: And you know, the fact that Vernon has a fire and police department itself is pretty surprising. Because most of the cities in LA County, we're talking cities with 40,000 residents, often just rely on either the LAPD or the sheriff's department. So it's really unusual for this place to have its own police department. It also uh, has its own health department, which is especially weird, because the only other cities that have that, I think, are Los Angeles, Long Beach, and San Diego, which are very, very different cities from this town, which, again, has only 90 residents.
0: Yeah. In the TV show, the police department is, you know, Colin Farrell and some other guys. And even though the dead body of Ben Casper was not discovered in Vinci, they very much wanted to get their guy onto it because that is one of the benefits of having your own police department when you're like a corrupt mayor is that these guys work for you directly. You're handpicking who like works underneath you and like that's why they wanted Colin Farrell on the case to like make sure that whatever gets discovered, does not trace back to the corruption of Vinci in any way. And I'm sure this is what's been happening in the real-life city of Vernon. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Malkinhorst's reign has not been without challenge. He survived a 1978 strike in which more than 90 firefighters were fired, a grand jury indictment stemming from an alleged election in priorities, and an FBI investigation of his administration. All challenges that have left him unscathed. We've negotiated good labor agreements with our people. We put them on a four-day work week because we had trouble keeping people. Most of the people who work for the city enjoy it. I mean, I'm sure they do, because they were like making bank (laughs) and doing shit all.
1: Absolutely. And they are making bank.
0: But in another breath, he delights in recalling an incident from years ago where he was new to the job and firefighters were preparing for their walkout. One firefighter in particular was showing up at a public meeting and lashing out at members of the city council. I asked the council why they allowed him to do that, and they said, Well, what can we do? I said... There's a lot of things you can do. He works for the city. We just took his job out of the budget. He was gone before the strike. And this is where I should mention that uh, all the residential buildings in the city are owned by the city. So the city council decides who gets to live in the city. So if there is a strike, you can just get evicted. And when you're evicted, you're no longer a resident of the city. And you know, we need residents of the city to work here. Sorry, you're gone. Bye-bye.
1: Which effectively means that this City is basically just a very large chamber of commerce. It's a way for hand-picked representatives of the various muddied interests in this whole area, who own the factories and the warehouses, to determine any of the policy decisions that happen in this town, because there are no regular citizens and regular voters. Insiders in Vernon consider Malkinhorst's power to be unassailable, even though, in theory, he answers to the city council and could replaced at any time. In practice, he consults council members only when he deems it necessary.
0: Yeah, so there is no rift in the power structure going on here. No, no.
1: To understand Malkinor's power, it is necessary to understand Vernon, a city unlike any other in Los Angeles County. Founded in 1905 solely to foster industry, it still bears the motto, exclusively industrial. The town, one of the richest in California in sales tax revenues, stands in sharp contrast to neighboring cities such as Huntington Park, Maywood, and Bell. Tiny, densely populated enclaves that struggle to pay their bills.
0: Yeah. And this has been a thing. um, I don't think the city has been dissolved yet, but one of the things is they want to dissolve the city because this is where all the industry is and this is where all the money is. And, you know, all the money is like slashing around and only benefiting like a handful of people. When you have like these cities where like the people who actually work in Vernon live... You're not getting shit at all.
1: Uh, just for the record, there are a couple other cities in Los Angeles. One of them is called Industry, and one of them is called Commerce, that exist for similar reasons, just to be places for factories to be. But only Vernon has these just bizarre housing policies. And as we're going to find out, only Vernon has this unbelievable tax structure that makes the people in power incredibly wealthy.
0: The Vernon landscape is a treeless, jarring scroll of square buildings. There are no parks, no green belts. Industrial town and just like factories and, you know, there's like um, rail track in the middle that's just like freight trains going all day and night. Not a great place to live, even if you could live there.
1: It most recently was in the news in the spring of 89 when a consumer group ranked Vernon as far and away the county's worst polluter among cities releasing airborne hazardous chemicals.
0: Yeah, another reason why this uh, city should just be dissolved. Smoke is coming off from the chimneys and just like floating to where like the residents live like in the next city over and just like they do not give any shit. I mean, what can you do? Absolutely. Although 45,000 people go to work every day in Vernon, all but a handful depart before nightfall. The town contains just 32 housing units, 26 of them owned by the city. The homes and apartments are occupied by a group of city employees who receive subsidized rents paying as little as $50 to $75 a month for two- and three-bedroom houses. Each occupant must be approved by the city council. You know, $50 seems cheap, but I looked this up, the numbers had ballooned to like $150. So not everybody's immune from uh, rising housing costs.
1: <laughs> and for the record, uh, since this article was published, the daytime population of Vernon has only grown, with estimates now being anywhere from 50000 to 70000 in being in the town in any single day.
0: Efforts to create more housing in Vernon have failed, largely because of zoning and policy decisions made by city government. For one thing, chemical wastes have contaminated much of the ground, Malcolmor said. And by the city's reckoning, each acre of new housing would cost 40 to 50 jobs to Vernon's first priority, industry. Which you know, I mean, I kind of get the logic here. If you're going to build housing, you got to knock down a factory. And if you knock down a factory, you're losing money. Yeah. Mayor Leone C. Mulberg, 60. Again, this is 1989. So 60, 1989. A major landowner whose grandfather, John Leone, helped create Vernon, is the most prominent member of the city council, a veteran for 33 years. It was the conservative, soft-spoken Mulberg who helped bring Mankelhorst aboard in the mid-1970s. So, Mankelhorst is not a member of the original dynasty that runs the city, but he was somebody that was you know, in the mid-1970s came on board, and now he and his family are basically part of the dynasty. So it's the Maulbergs and the Malkin Horse that have run Verdun. Anyway, I was just Googling to, like, figure out more about this city. I found this book from, like, 2002, though I think this chapter was written, like, 1992.
1: And this is a piece written by Mike Davis, who, if you're not familiar, is one of the biggest badasses in just the fields of American history. And if you haven't read any of his books yet, you need to change that immediately.
0: Yeah, a lot of his books are on Verso. He's a cool guy.
1: Oh, he's he's great. Yeah, he he's still very active now. I know he uh, he did an interview with on a few months ago, and he just had a really good piece on homelessness in Los Angeles. He's just one of the most consistent and consistently good writers in the broad American left orbit. And Davis says... The two most important facts about Vernon are, first, that it has a permanent residential population of only ninety adult citizens, seventy of them municipal employees, but a workforce of more than forty-eight thousand. That is to say, a commuter to resident ratio of six hundred to one.
0: Basically every major city, so like New York City, Washington, DC, those are the biggest ones, where it's just like the daytime population is double the nighttime population. Yeah. But like six hundred to one, like Even finding one that's, like, three to one is nearly impossible. Just to give you an idea of how extremely unique Vernon is.
1: Yes. And second, the city has been trolled by a single family, the Basque-Leone dynasty, since its formation in 1905. Originally established as a safe haven for sporting activities, boxing, drinking, and gambling, under attack by Los Angeles municipal reformers, Vernon evolved during the 20s into an exclusively industrial base, in the city's own words, for Eastern corporate branch plants. Under the iron heel of city founder John Leone, existing housing was condemned or bought out in order to reduce the residential population to a handful of loyal retainers, living in the literal shadow of the Hitler bunker like City Hall.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the details that's in the show. Colin Farrell, he's uh, one of the residents, of, and his house, just like every other house, is. Right next to City Hall, a 30-second walk. You don't even get privacy. Like, everybody in City Hall knows exactly where you live and can see where you live just, like, out their window. Yeah, which is, yes. Yeah.
1: And, and, so, and of course, so this means that uh, whenever elections do happen, every vote is essentially already bought. And, as we'll see, elections in Vernon thereby become a biennial farce, where the Leone Slate, now headed by grandson Leone Malberg, who we mentioned in the previous article is unanimously re-elected by a micro-citizenry of Leone employees. Although civic officials are required to live in the city for their election, the mayor has for decades brazenly flouted state law by residing in a family mansion in Los Angeles. The thousand-odd pages of documents used to argue Vernon's case for redevelopment inadvertently unmask an economy capitalized on poverty and pollution. A detailed survey of local wages, for instance, reveals that 96% of Vernon's 48,000 workers Earn income so low they qualify for public housing assistance. At least 50% of this largely unorganized workforce fall into the very low income category, making less than half of the county median, a dramatic downturn from the area's union wage norms 20 years before.
0: Yeah, part of that is because they hired Malcolm Horst, to was a union buster, onto the team.
1: Yeah, no, and because this is Los Angeles, uh, I am sure. That a huge portion probably a majority of these workers are probably Central American immigrants many of them undocumented and this just makes them all the more vulnerable for this kind of despicable exploitation
0: we looked into this um, just like the racial makeup there's conflicting information but basically my understanding is like of the actual residents the hundreds or so residents in the city I think most of them are white but people who work in the city Overwhelmingly, they're Latino, like ninety percent Latino.
1: Yeah, and, and, and all of the cities surrounding it, like Huntington Park and uh, Boyle Heights, are very, very Latino. So it's basically this place where a, a handful of uh, mostly white city employees, who are probably more educated and certainly more wealthy, live in this town and get to reap the benefits.
0: Yeah. So that book was from two thousand two, but I said like that chapter was like written like nineteen ninety two. And the previous article that we read was from 89. But around 2005 is when things start to unravel. LA Times headline, Tiny Town of Vernon is Focus of Inquiry. The District Attorney's Office served search warrants Wednesday at Vernon City Hall as part of an investigation of alleged misuse of public funds in the tiny industrial town on the southeast border of Los Angeles, authorities said. For the last several months, investigators from the District Attorney's Public Integrity Division have been conducting a preliminary probe of the city, which was sparked by complaint, said head deputy district, you know, whatever. He declined to identify who was being investigated, but did say it involved multiple targets. I mean, there's like 90 people in the city. Of course we know who it is. It's like the fucking mayor and like the city manager. <laughs> of yeah, yeah. One source familiar with the probe said that among the issues being examined is whether Mayor Mulberg actually lives in the city. The mayor, a wealthy landowner whose grandfather founded the city a century ago, owns a mansion near Hancock Park in Los Angeles, but he said his primary residence was an apartment on top of an office building he owned in Vernon. In the 89 article in the 92 book, they've mentioned the fact that he doesn't actually live in the city. He lives in a fucking, like, mansion.
1: In the TV show, it's in Bel Air, which is, like, the fanciest neighborhood of Los Angeles proper.
0: You know, somehow, like, I don't know, like 50 years in, they finally discover that he doesn't live in the city.
1: Which is ridiculous, because obviously everybody knew. I'm sure everybody in town knew that he didn't really live there. And I'm sure many of the employees who didn't live in the town had an inkling.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, like, somebody new on the job just, like, doesn't know that you're not supposed to touch this and just touched it. Like, I, I can't fathom any other reason why. But, I mean, it's good that they did.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, just, I just worry for their safety. That's it.
0: Yeah, I mean, as we know in the TV show The LA Times like reporter gets beat up. <laughs>
1: yeah. In <laughs> the first episode.
0: I don't think the LA Times are the real life LA Times reporters get beat up, but Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, no it happens. But hey, the, the LA Sheriff's Department killed a reporter in the 70s, so
0: since it was incorporated as an exclusively industrial city in 1905, Vernon has had just four mayors from two founding families. The five part-time councilmen have served an average of 34 years. Mulberg, who was appointed by the city council in 1956, became mayor in 1974 after the previous mayor died in office. And I guess his plan is to die in office too, because 1956 and this article is from 2005.
1: Oh yeah, that, that, that's wild.
0: City administrator Bruce Malkenhorst, one of the highest paid government officials in the nation... In recent years, Malcolm Horse has collected nearly six hundred thousand in annual salary, bonuses, payments for unused vacation. The city has leased expensive SUVs for him, including a fifty thousand dollar Cadillac Escalade. From nineteen ninety nine to early two thousand two, the city paid more than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars for limousine services used by Malcolm Horse. You know, we said earlier in eighty nine he was making like one hundred sixty two grand in eighty nine dollars, adjusted for inflation. This is still like a huge jump. And also before he just had like his Cadillac, now he's a fucking limousine as well.
1: Yeah. It's wild. And again, this is a city of less than 100 people. Where are they, Where is all this money coming from? How does a city government this small have such deep pockets?
0: All that tax revenue generated from these like industry, like it just comes to like the city's bank account. And because they have like no residents that they have to like provide with services, whatever, we'll just give the money for ourselves. I don't begrudge these people for being this, like, openly corrupt. This guy hasn't been living in the fucking city for, like, 30 years, and only after 30 somebody noticed? Like, after 15 years, I would just be like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just gonna take as much money from the bank and get as I can. Nobody's noticing. On some occasions, city workers have ferried Malkinhor's city-leased car to his home in Huntington Beach so that he could use the limousine service after council meetings Vernon. The Times found one city worker would drive Melkin Horse Escalade, while another would follow up in a city-owned vehicle to bring the driver back to Vernon. This fucking limo has been driving around the city, and like people aren't asking questions. Like Abs- I don't I don't know, absolutely,
1: God. you know, Abram and I were curious. How can this city have so much money to spend on things like this limo service? And so I looked it up, and it turns out that last year the city of Vernon, which again has what a population of 100 people produced a $250 million revenue in tax money, primarily through generous taxation on city-owned utilities.
0: Yeah, I mean, they have, you know, there's like all sorts of industrial stuff. There's sweatshops, as we said, meat processing factories. So there's like all these places that provide a large amount of tax revenue just like based on um, the space they have. You know, like sweatshop is a small space that produces a lot of money. Because, you know, you don't need really to give a shit about how your workers are being treated.
1: Yeah. Just uh, for the record, so lo- the city of Los Angeles, which has 4 million people, makes only about 20 times the tax revenue of Vernon, which, again, has 100 people.
0: I am so shocked they have not dissolved the city yet.
1: It's, it's, it's ridiculous.
0: They do some shenanigans to, like, oust these corrupt politicians out. But it's like, you're still not getting the money. Like, isn't that the point?
1: No, no, the the only change is that they actually, uh, they, the city ended up building some housing for non-city employees. But even still, it hasn't changed the fundamental character of the city at all.
0: Yeah, I mean... Dear God, our governments are, like, incapable of, like, doing anything. Like, even something, like, as obvious as this, just blatant corruption is, like, is this political system that intractable that we can't even, like, do these super obvious things?
1: There actually was one big challenge to the city of Vernon that happened really soon after this article was published, but it wasn't from Los Angeles. It wasn't from anyone with power. Instead, it was a very strange challenge basically
0: from the bottom up. An article from 2006 now. In most cities, elections happen at least every four years. In Vernon, office holders haven't faced opposition in a generation. 25 years after its elected officials' last day had contested ballot, eight strangers took up residence in the tiny city, four miles south of downtown LA. Last month, after just a few days in town, three of the newcomers filed petitions to run for city council in the April 11 election. So, I guess what happened was, somebody was reading the LA Times and just saw the salary that these people were making, just like, I gotta get in and out of the shit. I just got to move into this town, run for mayor, and I am on easy street for the rest of my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, some guy convinced seven of his buds to move into this—not probably not a very nice place to live. This like very dense and dirty, high crime industrial area,
0: worst polluter in the state,
1: and, and in California, that's saying something. With the, some of the worst air quality in the country,
0: within days, city utility trucks had turned off their power. The building they shared was slapped with red tags by inspectors who said the property was unsafe and dangerous as a residence. Strobe lights flashed through their windows. They and some of their relatives were placed under surveillance. Shortly, city police and other officials drilled holes into the locks and evicted the would be office seekers. <laughs> crazy. The cops are picked by the mayor to make sure nobody interferes with the mayor's light.
1: It's, it's just like in the show. It's, it's just like the relationship between Vince Vaughn. And Colin Farrell.
0: And Colin Farrell and the mayor in the show. Somehow worse than just like a regular cop. Oh god,
1: yeah, no. Especially because I I would think the cops are probably making bank too. It's probably not just the city councilman, right?
0: The cop in the show, Colin Farrell, is just getting like handed wads of cash all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if this is what's happening in real life. But in the show, the mayor orders like cash kickbacks from all the business owners. So one of Colin Farrell's things is just uh, collecting cash from the business owners and just Do you remember the
1: line that Vince Vaughn says about the city of Vernon? Or, sorry, Vinci in the show. It's, uh, this place is built entirely on a codependency of interests. Because it's this very weird situation that's basically held together with shoestrings because a lot of people are getting really, really rich off this tax
0: scheme. I gotta say, I really like Vince Vaughn in the show. I know you weren't, like, a fan of it, but...
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that some of his lines were cheesy, but he had a good performance, especially compared to someone like Taylor Kitsch.
0: Having deprived the interlopers of city residents, Vernon officials disqualified them from the ballot. In a letter, Malcolm Horse laid out the city's case. It was not credible that seven adult men and one adult woman would suddenly move from entirely different areas on the eve of the nomination deadline for municipal elections and then happen to nominate three members of this group for elected office five days later. Which, yeah, obviously, the letter also said the county council had determined that Vernon officials had legal power to decide who was a valid elector and legally registered to vote in the city. Oh, that's great. So, your government, the like, staffed by, like, your cronies, can just decide who can vote, like, on a whim.
1: Which is insane. No, yeah, like I said, it's—the it's, it's the, the entire city is, is a chamber of commerce. It's just—it's a way for decision-making to happen that— all these inevitably benefits the money and interests, the people who own the factories, the people who own the warehouses, the slaughterhouses, the uh, sweatshops.
0: At a Vernon city council meeting, three elderly incumbent council members who took turns walking through the door behind their seats, they recused themselves as the council voted to reappoint each of them. Then the city fathers did one thing that they almost always do every four years. They voted to cancel the election. I mean, everybody's going to vote for them anyway, but, like, they never vote. They just, like, don't even have elections. The last election was, like, 25 years.
1: Yeah, no, it's insane. No, yeah. And and you know what I find uh, maybe most interesting about this whole story is the fact that if you do look at the industry in the city of Vern itself, it's all small potatoes, basically. Like we said, it's things like sweatshops. It's um, warehouses. This isn't the kind of place that has the kind of high-productivity industries that you think would be making so much money. So what that makes me think is that these guys in Vernon are just really bad and really obvious at a type of corruption that's probably happening everywhere, probably often including industries that are making even more money per year than a quarter of a billion dollars.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, just imagine how fucking corrupt, like, the mayor of L.A. proper is...
1: Oh yeah, no, yeah, I'm sure Garcetti is. Yeah,
0: I mean, people don't really realize this, but obviously the mayor is elected, but there's roles like city administrator who are like appointed, and because they're appointed, you can be like as fucking corrupt as you want over like the course of like ten, fifteen years in your job, and nobody even knows your name. Nobody can like get rid of you if they want. That is the perfect gig to like be a corrupt politician, a city administrator.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The lack of residents means the city doesn't have to offer as many services as more populous cities but it has considerable revenue. The city has its own police, fire and health departments, and municipal utilities that generate tens of millions of dollars selling electricity and gas to local industries. The money has helped provide lucrative careers for a small group of city officials. Most notably, former city administrator Bruce Malkenhorst Sr., whose son, Bruce Malkenhorst Jr., is the acting city clerk. The senior Malkenhorst, who collected nearly 600000 in annual salary, bonuses and payments for use vacation before retiring last year. Not
1: to mention the limo
0: as he was under investigation, he resigned, but his son just took over his place.
1: Yeah, no, it's yeah, which if you if you've seen the show, uh, the father son stuff definitely comes up a lot.
0: A judge basically says, "No, you gotta have an election." What the fuck is this? No, yeah. This time they have to have an election, and it uh, frightens them a good deal.
1: This one from two thousand six, Vernon's official population is ninety one, but the number of registered voters has shot up from less than sixty to eighty six. About a dozen people registered in the weeks leading up to the March 27th deadline for Tuesday's election, the city's first in 25 years.
0: So they've been canceling this every four years like clockwork. No,
1: absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's crazy.
0: I mean, <laughs> I will say that's like population 91, 86 people registered to vote. That's like a, a good percentage. Yeah. The election pits three
1: challengers who moved into town earlier this year. You know, these are the people from the last article, the eight newcomers, against longtime incumbents mayor leone malberg mayor pro tem thomas ibarra and councilman michael mccormick who have ruled vernon for up to 50 years
0: yeah and those two last two names we haven't mentioned them before and they're never going to be mentioned again, which is amusing. There's like a bunch of equally corrupt individuals in this setup who managed to like come out on skates.
1: Yeah, unlike Leonie Malberg, they know how to keep their heads down. Yeah. The
0: new voters are all the more mysterious because officials have
1: long controlled who moves into the community's few city-owned homes. Vernon's leaders have in the past suggested that the challengers might bring in homeless people to help them get elected. But the challengers say it is the city that has imported ringer residents for election day.
0: Always the homeless people in L.A. Just like whenever you want to scare people, just say homeless.
1: (laughs) You know, actually, uh, just this whole like kind of manipulation of elections like that reminds me a little bit of something we just very briefly touched on in the last episode, if anyone was paying attention, which was uh, the 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 Nishi Hindu cult in Oregon, because they would do stuff like this: bring in like uh, they say ringer residents to uh, rig this small-time election to help their group get ahead.
0: I mean, yeah. Elections are corrupt. Like, what are you going to do? Especially small town elections.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. no.
0: I mean, you know, obviously, it's a hypocrisy coming from like the so, so corrupt side, like saying this.
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, the stakes of the election are high.
1: Whoever wins steers a city with more than a hundred million cash investments, more than double its general operating budget. In early January, eight people took residence in a boxy commercial building. Within days, three of the newcomers filed petitions to run for city council. The eight residents' voter registrations were rescinded, and the incumbents voted to cancel the election and reelect themselves.
0: Yeah, but then of course, a senior court judge ruled that officials had acted illegally when they stripped the three members of voter registration and canceled the election. So the election was back on. The last time there was an election in Vernon in 1980, this article is from 2006, the town's retired police chief. Spence E. Hogan, declared himself a candidate. He was quickly evicted from his city-owned <laughs> home. So there's a great story. Obviously, like, you have to live in the city to, like, run for, like, city council. Yeah, as soon as he said, uh, I'll run, bam, you're out of there. Get the fuck out.
1: Because they control the housing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfect system, honestly. Maybe it's not surprising that it lasted as long as it did.
0: Yeah, and this has been going on for since at least 1980. Even though Hogan won the vote count,
1: he lost the election after then-city administrator Bruce Malkenhorst disqualified six ballots. This time around, Malcolm Horst's son, Bruce Jr., is Vernon City Clerk, the official responsible for counting the votes.
0: Just disqualified ballots. Just like, okay, you won, but uh, these six guys, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just throwing these votes out. Trump is right. Our elections are rigged.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that, that's like, it's like, uh, we kind of joked about with the QAnon episode. It's like the, the uh, sometimes American right-wingers do stumble their way into identifying real problems but the fundamental mistake they make is thinking that only the democrats are doing this
0: it's the classic case of accusing the other side of what you're actually doing yourself
1: uh, yeah uh, absolutely yeah so and so, so let's see so so finally the election happens this is an article from a week later after polls closed on tuesday city clerk bruce Malkenhorst jr promptly carried a metal ballot box into the city council chamber and announced he wouldn't count the votes Malkinhorst cited several lawsuits later to the disputed election in announcing that he would not count the ballots. I've determined that no ballots should be open tonight, Malkinhorst said, due to the fact that there is an existing litigation to cancel the voter registration of 73 defendants named in three lawsuits.
0: Out of a city of 91 residents and 86 registered voters, 73 people are potentially going to lose their vote. Which
1: is wild. Yeah, no, Which and it, it, this shows that it's uh, they were scared, you know, the fact that they knew that maybe if these three newcomers did get into City Hall, this whole house of cards might come falling down. So they used this bullshit lawsuit to try to stop the election. Malcolm Horse that the ballots might not be counted until all legal actions would be resolved, which could take months. The challengers immediately called for a federal investigation of the election suggesting that the delay occurred because the three incumbents, who've been in office for as long as 50 years, were worried that they might lose. "'I've never heard of not counting ballots you have on hand,' said Deborah Wright, executive liaison to the LA County Registrar. But you know, Vernon keeps falling into this category of behavior that you just don't find legal citations for. I don't suppose it's illegal, but it's very, very strange."
0: Oh yeah, that's always good. Just like not counting vote, and then like a legal official just saying... Well, I mean, I guess it's not illegal. It's like, what do you mean it's not illegal? How is that not illegal?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so you gotta wonder. So if they say we can't count the votes until this litigation happens, how long will it take?
0: After six month delay, choices of Vernon voters are known. Oh, this is gonna be good. I wonder who's gonna win. <laughs> oh, edge of my seat! The first contested election of the industrial town of Vernon had in 25 years has come to an end. On Thursday, ballots from the April election were finally counted. Again... This is October 20, 2006. The election was in April 2006. History was made, but it was repeat history. The three men who moved into the city, who weathered an eviction, court challenges, and gun-toting private investigators, had forced an election, but the challengers lost to longtime incumbents.
1: 68 ballots, sequestered in a red box for six months, as legal challenges to the election made their way through the courts, were counted in the city of 93 residents. The challengers got only 10
0: votes. I mean, that's good. So that's like their entire group all voted. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, find out who these guys were who uh, did this.
1: Two of the challengers, Don Huff and David Johnson, so disappointed outside Vernon City Hall after the count. Huff, who's lived for periods out of his sports utility vehicle after being evicted from his home in Vernon, said the city would never again go a quarter century without an election. I'm going to do the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing and say, I'll be back.
0: That's so badass. (laughs) Again, I don't know much about these guys, but just hearing that single quote in this article, just like, oh yeah, this is a guy who saw in the newspaper how much these guys were making and hashed a plan to get some of that money for himself.
1: Yeah, and although tragically, I don't believe that Mr. Huff ever did get a piece of that pie, we're going to see that at least he did help in bringing to light this really sleazy corruption.
0: So obviously, this investigation happened before the election, but because there was an investigation going on... You know, there's, like, eyes on the city from, like, the government. So they couldn't easily cancel the election as they had always done. Anyway, our chickens are coming to roost. So we said, under investigation in early 2005, here, November 2006, Vernon Mayer and ex-official are indicted, capping years of investigation. L.A. County prosecutors filed public corruption charges Wednesday, accusing Vernon's longtime mayor of voter fraud and the former city administrator of using public funds for personal purposes. I thought this guy was against voter fraud, and now you're telling (laughs) me he's indicted with voter fraud? Prosecutors charged that Mulberg, 77, has been fraudulently voting in Vernon elections for decades as he allegedly lives in his grandfather's former estate in Hancock Park, 20 miles away. So, yeah, again... He's been work. he's been living in this fucking mansion for like 30 years 40, 40 years at this point
1: it's hilarious yeah yeah on the in the nicest neighborhood of Los Angeles
0: oh yeah oh we just we just found out in like 2006 that you haven't been living in the city for like the since the 70s no the 60s the mirror's alleged vote for dates to at least 1967 according to criminal complaint so you know the law eventually catches up to you it may take 50 years but it eventually catches up to you
1: yeah and the mayor's wife, Dominica Malberg, and their son, John, were also accused of illegal voting in Vernon. The district attorney's office also charges that longtime city administrator Bruce Malkenhorst, 71, spent $60,000 in city money for personal use, including massages, meals, political contributions, and here it is golf outings.
0: This is like a detail that finally comes up now because, yeah, we said. We knew about the fucking limousine, we knew about the Escalade and shit, but, like, also, he was getting massages on the side and, like, $60,000 on, like, in meals. This guy's going to, like, four-star restaurants every single meal.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, this dude's at Nobu. Vernon was founded in
0: 1905 by a charismatic Basque immigrant named John paptiste Lenoir. Over the next few decades, consolidated power and purchased property around the city. As early as 1925, a Los Angeles Times exposé accused Lenoir of operating in Sistiet as a fiefdom where dissenters were run out of town. So, this place has been corrupt since 1905, and the LA Times has been like covering this since then.
1: Yeah, which is crazy.
0: And this is great, this is great. In the 1940s, the district attorney indicted Lenoir and other Vernon leaders on charges that are eerily similar to the case presented Wednesday. Prosecutors called Lenoir a boss who committed voter fraud by casting ballots in Vernon when he actually lived in the Hancock Park home his grandson had allegedly <laughs> occupies. So his dad was doing the exact same thing. He was fucking living in the exact same house and voting in the exact same elections. Absolutely. But the charges against the law were eventually dropped. And by the time he died in 1953, he had amassed an estate reportedly worth $8 million. So yeah, I mean, and that's why his son just like brazenly did all this shit because dad brazenly did all this shit and like <laughs> got away with it for like 50 years. I gotta say the actor who plays the mayor in uh, season 2 of True Detective he's great.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, he really kills it. Yeah, yeah.
0: And the actor is just playing drunk for literally every single scene and it's just perfect. And he's just like such a piece of shit. Like,
1: and uh, yeah, not only is he a piece of shit but his son in the show is involved in this high level sex scandal. And As Abram and I found out, that was also rooted in the truth.
0: Yeah. Um, Not exactly. I think it was more like, you know, seeing flavor of, you know, the sun doing like weird perverted sex shit and just putting that in the show. But of course, the stuff they put in the show is not exactly what happens because, I mean, you'll find out why you wanted to actually want this in the show.
1: You want to read this article published just one day later after the previous indictments?
0: A political corruption scandal took a sordid of turn Thursday when a defendant in the Vernon Voterford prosecution was charged with sexually molesting four boys while serving as dean of students at Daniel Murphy Catholic High School. Jesus. Authorities said one student appeared in a sexually explicit tape in exchange for a higher grade. In addition, oh. Mulberg, 37, is charged with possessing child pornography and secretly videotaping boys while they showered in his Han- Hancock Park home. So, yeah, this is kind of why you don't actually want that in the show.
1: Yeah, even for True Detective, it's like, it's, it's, it's too uncomfortable, this kind of abuse, I feel like.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the show, he's just running girls, Eastern European escorts, you know, of age.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, what actually happened is, is much more heinous and really just, just sickening stuff. And it says here that um, the DA's office said that investigators looking for evidence of corruption discovered by accident child pornography on a computer seized from John Marlberg's home.
0: Yeah, so, you know, you have this investigation that's not really related to what ends up happening. Any shady person, as soon as they're under investigation for anything, no matter how minor, even just like voter fraud or just like, you know, embezzling funds or whatever, nobody like a piece of shit like these people are content being a singular type of piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, I'll just read this final line from this. The 12 Counts Against Marlberg covered alleged incidents from 96 to 2000, and from 2004 to September of this year. And this year being 2006. He is accused of molesting a boy whom he met while working as a psychologist.
1: Yeah, abusing a position of trust, which happens all the time, you know.
0: Yeah. And three years later, he's sentenced to eight years in prison. So that's nice, at least.
1: Yeah, there was some semblance of justice in that case.
0: The Malbergs, Malcolm Horse, completely taken down. But... There's one other person that's left to be taken down. So in this show, True Detective, the murder victim is the city administrator, the corrupt city administrator, who up until this point in this article has not even come up once. The murder victim in the show is based on this guy, as we'll find out. Here's an article from 2010. Again, like four or five years after all these guys are gone. Yeah, yeah. These uh, corruption shenanigans are still going on. So, 2010. A low-key lawyer makes millions on Vernon's dime. Eric T. Fresh. Great name. Fresh name. Lawyer and former Administrator who is not only one of the nation's highest paid public officials ever, but one of the least known. Like I said, if you wanna be a crop piece of shit, you gotta be city administrator. Nobody knows who the fuck you are. And the reason nobody knows who the fuck this guy is because no photos of Fresh hang in city hall, and his image cannot be found on the internet. Until recently, his name rarely appeared in print. He is not a familiar figure, even in Vernon, where he raked $7.5 million in salaries and fees since 2005, routinely flying down on the small southeast L.A. County city from his Marin County home on Mondays and back on Wednesdays, often in first class. So after they take that fucking mountain horse for, like, driving around the city in a fucking limousine, this guy comes in and just flies back and forth in first class <laughs> tickets. Yeah. They took out one guy and then immediately somebody else comes along and is doing the exact same shit.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And again, because again, this city is making a quarter billion dollars every year in tax revenue because they have this bizarre tax structure that lets the city take so much of the uh, industrial taxes from the the companies and utilities there. And this is what they do. They, they, They pay it to people like this guy so he can protect them in exchange for tons and tons of money.
0: Half of their, like, revenue is pure profit. Half of that does not have to be, like, reinvested in the city.
1: Yes, yes. And I I think this shows that if they are willing to spend this much money on a lawyer, that means that they're making, the, the city fathers and all that, are making so much more money for themselves.
0: And also, Vince Vaughn, his character, runs the poker room. In uh, Vinci, the fictional city, it's going to come up a little in a second. City officials refused to answer written questions about his work, his relationship with a private investigator who was paid millions through city contracts. New family dynasty moved in town. Since as as this guy gets in, the Fresh family ties to southeast LA County stretch back more than two decades, sometimes marked by business disputes and controversy. Late patriarch Eugene Fresh made headlines in 1988 when Huntington Park gave a trash-holding contract to his new company, HP Disposal, even though it had no headquarters, no trucks, no experience. Eric and his older brother Curtis joined him in the business, according to records and interviews. First, second season of Sopranos, this is what they do. Secure contracts, and they don't even have the real business going on at that point. The Elderfresh, a successful businessman in Ohio, had moved his family to Las Vegas in the early 70s, and partnered a company that ran the Hacienda Hotel and Casino. By the time he won the garbage contract, his sons had opened a poker club in Huntington Park <laughs> and was pumping fifty thousand dollars a year into the city treasury.
1: Sound familiar?
0: And um I should say, in the show, the poker club isn't just a poker club. It's also a place where, you know, selling drugs and like running prostitutes and yeah. shit. Yeah.
1: No, oh, which which one which one does in a poker club.
0: And yeah, that is um and the profits from those shady dealings that are going on in the poker club, a percentage of that like 10% is given in cash directly to the city's mayor. Which is
1: just insane. Just blatant corruption.
0: I mean, this is, you know, dramatization for like TV purposes, but would not be surprised if this is exactly what's going on in real life as well. Curtis Fresh, the brother, has worked for Vertnick since 2005. So far this year, records show he's made more than $30,000 as a $160 an hour a week renewable energy consultant and administrative aid to the city council. Renewable energy consultant. This fucking industrial piece of shit. Like, what is this guy doing? Like, telling him to like, build a fucking windmill? Like, what is he doing?
1: Oh, it's it's bizarre.
0: When Mount Horse was charged with misuse of public funds in 2006, Fresh filled the void. As city administrator who received about $1.4 million in 2006, one and a half in 2007, 1.65 in 2008, according to records obtained by the Times, in 2008, he billed... For 363 days of work, records show, including every Saturday, every Sunday, every holiday, except Christmas.
1: But as we will see, it was not to be, because in 2011...
0: Last year, when his compensation and, and district attorney's investigation into corruption in the city sparked an effort in the legislature to disband the industrial city, Fresh disappeared from Vernon. He stopped attending council meetings and refused to speak publicly. So yeah, unlike the other guys, as soon as like the hammer came down on this guy, he was out gone.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and so it's, as you can see, there's all these really crazy striking similarities between the fictional city of Vinci and the real-life town of Vernon in California. We've seen this bizarre corruption with this town of very few people. We've seen uh, the lurid sex scandal involving the son of the mayor. But we're going to see there's actually one more really striking parallel.
0: So again, the character that this man is based on, Casper, and Casper is the murder victim in the show, who they find dead on the side of the road.
1: And what happens in
0: 2012? Uh Eric T. Fresh starts to smell not so fresh anymore.
1: <laughs> because, yeah.
0: The body of Fresh, 58, was discovered by Rangers Thursday evening at Angel Island State Park, which is located in the San Francisco Bay, not too far from Fresh's home. Fresh's death came on the same day a state audit was released painting a dire picture of Vernon's finances.
1: You know, unfortunately, I looked up uh, and I could not find whether or not his eyes had been solved by acid.
0: In a statement issued Friday afternoon, the city said it sends its heartfelt condolences to the family of former Vernon City Administrator Eric T. Fresh in their time of great personal loss due to his unfortunate passing. The island where Fresh died features a mix of trails and terrain, including gravelly roads and some cliffs. Authorities said they were still trying to piece together what happened and were asking for the help of anyone who was on the island Thursday.
1: Is it going to be uh, quickly ruled as an accident or a suicide and never discussed again?
0: I'm pretty sure what actually happened was the official story, which is that, you know, he went to, like, take some photos, and then just slipped and, like, fell down the side of the hill, landed face down at, like, the bottom of the hill and just, like, died there.
1: But you always gotta wonder, you know? It's like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, we'll probably get into this in a later episode— but some of the listeners might know that uh, media magnate Robert Maxwell died somewhat suspiciously, where he just was uh, out in his boat one day, and then he disappeared. And it's kind of one of those things where, like, I think in both these cases, there's a really good chance, probably most likely, total accident. But because both these people knew so much about such a high level of corruption, there would have been a whole bunch of people who really benefited from his death, even if it was an accident.
0: Yeah. Just strange oddity about how the law works is that if somebody dies, the investigation into that person just stops. Oh, they're dead. There's no need to like continue this investigation. This is just wasting police time, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, corrupt politicians or corrupt businessmen's death are very beneficial to uh, their conspirators. So, I like the first season a lot more, right? I mean, I think everybody that You liked it a lot more too, right?
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I said before that the first season is like a kind of tired premise, but like it's a premise done perfectly. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you haven't seen it, I'll just give away the basic first episode summary. Is um, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, they're cops in Kansas, like a small town. And one day they discover a dead girl's body and it looks like this girl was killed in a ritual sacrifice like a cult ritual sacrifice then they get hit a brick wall in the investigation and they start to suspect that perhaps this cult that did this murder is bigger than they think perhaps this cult even has ties to like people in power you know perhaps there's something much more sinister going on in this entire city and this is like a thing that's been going on in media for a very long time and again it's Actually, perfectly here, but it gets me thinking, because I guess not everybody knows the history of this. So I just want to take a minute, talk a little about the history of the satanic panic of the 80s, because this is something I've thought about with regards to the series and, you know, like other shows like this. Mm-hmm. After World War II, there were a few things going along that slowly blur together over time until we get to the 80s when things reach a boiling point. Yeah. First is the Red Scare, the idea of secret communists hiding in America, local small towns, you know? Yeah. Like, just, you know, if you're living somewhere, like, in the middle of nowhere, in Indiana, there's, like, communists hiding in your little town. That's, like, something that um, politicians on TV were really promoting. Yeah, of course. For self-serving reasons, because, you know, the writing politicians, they want to say, communists are out to get you, vote for me, and I'll protect you. You know, that sort of shit.
1: Yeah. McCarthy, Nixon,
0: and Cohen. Second is the counterculture movement. You know, where, like, a lot of people, all of a sudden, are exploring Eastern religions. Buddhism, Hinduism, Ari Krishnas, the cult we mentioned in, you know, the Parallax episode. Yeah, Rosh-nishis. And finally, you have people exploring their cult and pagan religions. Yes. And end of the 60s is when the Church of Satan was founded.
1: Yes, good old Anton LaVey.
0: Yeah, the Satanic Bible. That's when that came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. That was like a like an atheist skeptic movement.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's really goofy. They, they were basically just... Uh, uh, Ayn Rand with Dracula capes. Matt Chrisman goes as far as to say that they're just uh, American Protestantism taken to its like most logical extreme. The the, the 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 spiritualized cult of the self, basically, is what modern Satanism is.
0: And of course, in popular media, you have like all sorts of fantasy, horror, yeah, movies, books, comics,
1: Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, musician Black Sabbath,
0: yeah, like all this shit, just like exploring these themes, yeah. Specifically exploring the theme that the first season of True Detective explores, which is the idea of a secret devil-worshipping society hiding amongst us. Like, there's this whole society of people that exist in the shadows, and, you know, we just see them as, like, regular people. But there's, like, a whole darkness that we're not seeing. Right. Yeah, and of course, you know, these movies, these books, whatever, they expose these ideas to more people, and those people in turn make more art you know exploring these ideas and whatever so like these ideas grow over time you know 60s 70s 80s which leads to the conservative backlash yes and a fear that this isn't just like harmless fun these aren't just movies this isn't just like people making art but like something far more sinister like subliminal messaging from hollywood trying to like turn your kids (laughs) satan's
1: right and there was kind of a big backlash in the mid-'80s in general to Hollywood. One of the real boiling point events, especially among Catholics, was that Martin Scorsese, who you know, is actually very Catholic himself, put out The Last Temptation of Christ, which caused this massive international backlash, not only to, uh, to Scorsese, but to the studio system in general. And I don't know if you know this part, but in France, a group of neo-fascists machine-gunned a whole movie theater full of people watching that movie.
0: Jesus fucking
1: Christ. Crazy. Crazy stuff.
0: And that that leads into something else that's going on this time. Is, um the increase in violent crime in like all major cities.
1: Yeah, yeah, across the 60s, 70s, 80s.
0: And as discussed in our previous episode, like a number of high-profile assassinations.
1: Yes. It's really insane how many people were, how many public figures were murdered in such a short period of time.
0: Yeah. And that kind of leads us to President Nixon because President Nixon's whole thing was like law and order, and he was like elected to like clean up all the shit. But of course, he goes down, becomes the first president ever to resign because he lied to the American public for Watergate, and that leads to the eighties.
1: Yeah, after the the brief uh, the brief pit stop of Carter.
0: Yeah, but like after after Nixon, like all of a sudden people weren't trusting the government anymore. No, no this paranoia about like satanism, about violent crime, and now you've got the fucking government lying to you, like all these things are starting to blend together when you're going into the 80s.
1: And I would think what I would argue one other important element here was the failure of Vietnam, which led to a lot of soul searching in the American right and also is a really foundational moment in causing the far right like elements like the Klan and other, you know, kind of white nationalist elements cause them to basically divorce themselves from the American project and become separatists.
0: Also leads to, you say, soul-searching. This leads to a increase in um, giving up this uh, counterculture, Eastern religion and going back to Christianity. That's right. Specifically in the 80s, what you get is the first decade of the television preacher, the televangelist. So, And this is where like basically everything comes together. You know, All these anxieties and fears flowing around like, finally come together, because now you have these men of God— like on TV, tying the sphere, red scare, communists, Eastern religions, rock music, devil worship, our own government—all these things tying together, all together. Yeah, and just basically saying this is all the same thing. This is all the same thing.
1: Absolutely. And, and the the more moderate side of the evangelicals were that they called themselves the Jesus movement. They were especially sneaky because they got kind of the most moderate of the the hippie counterculture types to. Turn They convince them with their more modern religious aesthetics to turn back from counterculture and move to God.
0: And also, so you have this all this paranoia, but like cults and Satan worship and shit, like floating around in like right-wing spaces. But, you know, when you have like politically integrated neighborhoods in these small towns and, you know, like Indiana, Michigan, wherever the fuck. That stuff starts to dissipate from like these more religious people watching this like televangelist crap to just like regular people and you know at like um the hairdressers or like the grocery store or whatever yeah and this paranoia slowly starts to seep out into like non-religious people or you know like so now all of a sudden you have you know in the 80s you have all these people just like completely convinced like satanic cults exist and like there's ritualistic like child abuse and all that shit maybe not specifically in their community but definitely in communities throughout the country and then in the 90s i don't know why but just kind of stop believing that shit yeah yeah I want to say, there's. we might do this in a future episode, but, you know, you look up on Wikipedia the Day cure Sex Abuse Hysteria, that Wikipedia article. I'll just leave this line from that article that just says this. In 1996, an investigation of more than 12,000 allegations of satanic, ritual, and religious abuse resulted in no cases that were considered factual or corroborated. So, like, none of this was real. All this fear was going out, everybody was convinced of this shit. None is real. So it's like, what the fuck was that about? We get to this in like, um, True Detective season one, where it's like playing with these elements again. This stuff has been floating in the ether for so very long.
1: So many years.
0: That by the time when True Detective comes out, it's just, um, not only is it a very tired and very heavily explored like idea, it's also something that's like, like, why are we still enamored with this shit?
1: I think it's because everybody knows that the world is a little bit more complicated than they think it is and that they are very uncomfortable with the fact that they don't know who are the real power brokers there's this feeling of distrust that political figures the most you know famous power holders in society have other people to answer for and that leads to confusion and leads to speculation and sometimes that speculation gets a little bit out of hand
0: so i mostly bring up the satanic panic angle of like you know suburban paranoia because of like how dumb I was. But I do want to talk about the other part, which is the idea that there are people in our community who are part of a secret community, you know, like a cult, conspiracy. It was like in the 80s specifically. This was just a very common held belief that maybe not the people in your community or like the people you know are part of this but this stuff exists you know like the guy at the EHS store is like part of like a satanic cult or something or even somebody at the grocery store or something just like just random people like random nobodies are part of this thing and it just vanished in the 90s
1: uh, I would take a step back. I think there was plenty of conspiracy stuff in the 90s. I think actually, if anything, it was the kind of the golden age of conspiracy theories, but it wasn't so much the, the Red Scare style. It wasn't, is my neighbor a secret Satanist? It was more, is H.W. Uh, Bush trying to start a one-world government? It was much, I would say, in some ways uh, less personal, and in other ways... Uh, in some ways less fantastical, in other ways more. That's when you start having the really crazy like lizard people conspiracies, and that's when I believe the the flat earth conspiracy comes around. Uh and and of course, uh this would have its most violent implications with stuff like Ruby Ridge and uh Heaven's Gate. And uh, probably most notoriously the Oklahoma City bombing.
0: I mean obviously those things are true, but the thing I can get away with is um You know, you say lizard people, flat earthers, those are not, like, a commonly held belief.
1: No, yeah. Yeah, those are very fringe.
0: Whereas, genuinely, I want to say, like, the idea of, like, a shadow society that exists in your town was, you know, not, like, literally everybody, but, like, definitely at least a quarter of, like, suburban people believed that was a real thing. Wow, yeah. Anyway, so Eyes Wide Shut comes out in 1999 and was not nominated for any Oscars at the two thousand Academy Awards, <laughs> and some people say the reason Hollywood rejected *As White Shot* was because they felt it was like too relatable.
1: Yeah, no, it's dirty laundry.
0: I disagree with that completely. What do you think? I think the reason was not nominated for anything, and the reason *American Beauty* won the Oscar, the movie where Kevin Spacey, a middle-aged man, wants to have sex with a teenage girl, is because Hollywood felt that was so relatable. <laughs>
1: Uh huh.
0: You know, middle-aged, upper-middle-class guy who wants to fuck high school girl. That's like half the academy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you so see, you don't think it was that there was any conspiracy to hide eyes wide shut. It was just that the, it simply got pedoed.
0: This is what's going on in real life. Like that's very funny. Like American Beauty is the is the real thing that's going on. Like
1: because so, cause you're saying because in real life abuse is is is, mundane it's not so fantastical
0: yeah it's not fantastical it's not like people in robes doing like these rituals it's just like that's true
1: yeah you're right in real life it's the son of a small town mayor you've never heard of who is a school psychologist and uses his position to abuse young boys
0: yeah i mean what it is is rich people aren't doing these like fantastical rituals dressing up in robes wearing masks and just like i can't picture like bill gates or like you know Jeff Bezos or whatever, like being just like a background character and like a eyes wide shut scene or just like standing there motionless, wearing the mask and just like
1: Elon Musk, maybe
0: none of them are putting up with that shit. What they're doing is they're hiring prostitutes. You know what I mean? Of course. Call up Jeffrey Epstein and say, hey, I want to like bang some like 16 year old chick and like he'll hook you up and that's it. They're not they're not going through the soul song and dance bullshit.
1: No. Yeah, that's true. And of course, also that like if it's a paid prostitution ring, instead of just like uh, like a shadowy sex abuse scandal, it's probably a lot easier to cover up.
0: Yeah. It's good that you bring up paid prostitution ring, because that is something that comes up in the show, True Detective Season 2. And it's also something I want us to delve into a little bit, because there are obviously a lot of these real prostitution rings that exist. But there is one story about a very real prostitution ring from 2007, 2008, like this is as close to behind the curtain as we ever get. I think.
1: Yeah, and I remember I was I was basically a kid when this happened, but I, it it was a new story. I remember um, this was a big deal at the time.
0: Yeah, this is of course the story of the infamous DC Madam. We're reading a Vanity Fair article for uh, this episode for this. Yeah. Let's just uh, start reading from this article. So, 2008, DC Madam, Deborah Jean Palfrey played a risky game in catering to Washington's power brokers with her upscale escort service. Her suicide this month marked a tragic and not unexpected end for a complicated woman who believed she was unfairly victimized. Having talked to plaffily for months and spoke with her mother after her death, the author tells the whole story. Somebody who's hooking up powerful people with prostitutes that winds up dead. I mean, there's obviously something that happens in the show with Ben Casper because that is what he was doing. Absolutely. And also happens with another famous example.
1: As you're going to find out, dead in the exact same alleged cause.
0: Yeah, that's, um... History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Oh, yes. The name of the agency was Pamela Martin & Associates, and according to at least two of the young women who worked for it, it was well known to be the highest quality operation of its kind in Washington, D.C., thanks to Plafferly's professionalism, Palfrey who ran the service from her home in Vallejo, California, which is like like an hour outside of San Francisco. So she's running this DC prostitution ring from her home on the other side of the country, which is interesting. She would demand that employees dress smartly in a style that reflected her own perchance for neat pantsuits, sensible heels, and discreet jewelry, what she called the Ann Taylor look. She stipulated they may not drink or take drugs during appointments and that they be punctual. Her gals, as she called them, had to be over 23. They had to have college degrees and day jobs. So already you can tell this is like very different. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is an escort service, but I mean, we know what an escort service is. It's like legalized prostitution.
1: No, yeah, yeah. Just this one clearly has this veneer of legitimacy.
0: Yeah, so it's like a legitimate business, you know, with like people, like actual, you know, stakeholders and like has like a tax bill and shit. So this is a legitimate business, but... Yeah. What it is, is it's hooking up these guys with young women, and then whatever they do in their date, the escort service doesn't know about it, looks the other way. So it is basically a legal way for somebody with a lot of money, with like two grand to spend like a night with a woman to like have sex.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, procuring, you know, it's probably the uh, second oldest profession.
0: These escort services don't really exist in places where um, legalized prostitution exists. You know, like... This isn't D.C., this isn't in Vegas, or like Reno, Nevada, you know?
1: Yeah, or Bangkok.
0: I mean, she even says, according to Plaffery, they had to sign contracts promising not to copulate or perform oral sex with clients, but they could do pretty much anything else. (laughs) That's interesting. You signed that because it says...
1: You're not a prostitute.
0: I promise not to prostitute myself under company time, yada yada yada, whatever.
1: Protects you legally, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The woman would typically earn $300 plus tips for a 90-minute appointment. They would then spend half of the base fees to play For the most part, the women were careful not to let drop their clients any clues as to the real names or day jobs. So yeah, I mean, $300 to get them in the room. And there's like another several hundred dollars to like, you know, do what they want. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I, I would think that the, probably the real reason that these women are paid so much money for, for this allegedly sex act's Probably not for the acts themselves so much as the fact that there's this understanding of silence.
0: Yeah, and these are all professionals. Like, as we say, this is like the most professional place there is because she says these women have to be adults. You know, 23, they have to have a college degree. They have to be smart and educated. This is a guarantee of professionalism. Yeah, yeah. Things aren't going to go south in the way that, like, somebody who's pipping out, like, 18-year-old girls with like who, like, dropped out of high school.
1: Or, yeah, or, hey, if you uh, you hang out with Jeffrey Epstein, you know, and you meet some 16-year-old girls.
0: Like, a back-alley pimp is not going to guarantee you shit. Whereas, like, if you go to this very professional service, there is, like, a level of guarantee of privacy and service that you're getting.
1: And remember when uh, Robert Kraft was caught in that, pro- in that uh, you know, rub-and-tug bust? Even, like, very powerful people can find themselves getting implicated in prostitution scandals if they're not very, very careful which, with which sex workers they associate with. The men who used the agency ranged from CEOs to store clerks, from terminally ill men and those with seriously ill wives to men on the verge of marriage who wanted one last fling. They included, as we know now, former Deputy Secretary of State Randall Tobias, Pentagon Advisor Harlan Ullman, and U.S. Senator David Vitter, a Republican from Louisiana, you know, David Vitter, uh, anyone who might know this, this was not certainly not his only prostitution implication that happened during his time as a senator.
0: Yeah. Also, that first sentence you read about, like, store clerks and terminal men, this is just, like, shit she's saying to, like, make her service seem much more palatable for, like, somebody interviewing her for the news.
1: Right, right. Oh no, we're we're doing a service, you know. Th- th- these men need this. Yeah, it's some bullshit. Yeah, this
0: is mutual aid, you know, sexual mutual <laughs> aid stuff. Oh
1: god, yeah. I'm very glad that this was pre-Twitter because I'm sure the discourse around this would have been terrible.
0: I mean, we kind of we kind of get an, an idea of what the discourse would have been with the Jeffrey Epstein stuff that was on Twitter. Okay. This stuff is for people who make like 200 grand a year. Whereas the Jeffrey Epstein stuff was people who, like, make $200 million a year or more, right? So this is just a very, very small-scale version of what the Jeffrey Epstein stuff was going on.
1: Yeah. A grand jury was convened in 2006 on charges of racketeering and mail fraud. And on March 1st, 2007, Palfrey, this is the DC madam, was indicated for running a prostitution enterprise. She told Vanity Fair she was offered a plea deal that included four months' imprisonment, but she turned it down. She kept the claim that if a legal sex work took place, that her employees had broken their agreements. In court, the women said otherwise, that she merely spoke to them in euphemisms to hide the true nature of what was going on.
0: So they're not that professional, you know? They just turned their backs on her, like, immediately as soon as, like, you know, the hammer went down. I mean, I can't blame them, but yeah.
1: And, yeah, after her indictment, Palfrey, and I think this might have been her biggest mistake, threatened to sell the agency's phone records, the highest bidder. In March 2007, she gave four years' worth of phone records to ABC News. As part of her defense, in court pairs, she filed that month. She outed Ullman as a client. She selected the Pentagon advisor because he, in fact, had come up with the phrase shock and awe, which was later used in the government's effort in Iraq, a fact that she thought would show the prominence and quality of her clientele.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. We say she threatened to sell her phone records to the highest bidder. So she was running a very professional enterprise. What I mean by that is she was guaranteeing her clientele privacy. She wasn't getting their real names or, like, address or anything like that. She wasn't getting, like, their credit cards. Everything was paid in cash. You know what I mean? You know, she has their phone records because, like, they call her to, like, set up arrangements. But, obviously, the person on the other line could just be using, like, a a prepaid phone, you know, like a burner, which wouldn't even trace back to them. So, the only reason... We know some of these names, you know, like the Pentagon advisor and um, Vitter, the senator, is because those were the guys stupid enough to just, like, call on their personal phone. So when, when the hammer came down on her and she decided to leak the phone records, people looking through the phone records could, could just, like, figure out who these phone numbers belong to. But most of her clientele were uh, a lot smarter than those guys, because they basically all get away free.
1: Yeah. Paul Free claimed that in addition to phone numbers of CIA officials who used her service, she had top-secret documents implicating a CIA officer in a kickback scheme that involved government contracts awarded to his friends. Palfrey never came through with the documents, and I'm not sure if she ever had what she claimed.
0: Yeah, that was a lie. Just obvious lie. Trying to do the thing, or like, if they come down on me, you're all going down. Right. Yeah. Like I said, she actually had a very professional service and all she had was the phone records. So, like, she fucked herself by, like, actually guaranteeing these people the privacy.
1: Absolutely. And it really seems like she fucked herself. Because without, you know, without, without rushing to judgment here, I think uh, what happened next is incredibly suspicious, especially coming off, essentially, this threat to reveal the information that could have ruined the careers of a lot of very, very powerful people. You want to read, Abram, what ended up happening
0: to her? Two weeks after her conviction, she was found hanging by a metal bar in a shed near her mother's home in Tampa, Florida. She left two suicide notes, wrote that she could not spend six to eight years behind bars. And, you know, this is one of those things I am leaning towards that, you know, she was like an older woman and she was going to go to jail for like eight years. And like, she could not bear the thought of that. I do lean towards that this is what actually happened you just you have to wonder i i do not i do not blame anybody for thinking otherwise like she did leak the name of like one pentagon guy and a senator like at that point is like if you are somebody who is a service and you work for the cia and you have access to the heart attack gun i would just like track her down and just like point that shit at her point blank
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: like, I'm serious. like you do not want to take the risk of like her potentially actually having something. You just got to take her out. Yeah. This, of course, can easily be juxtaposed with Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike Deborah, Jeffrey made the very correct decision to embed himself with his clients and his clients' social circles, right? Yeah. You've seen the photos of him with, like... Oh,
1: yeah. Everybody, you know. Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Bill Gates, Kimball Musk. Kevin Spacey. Kevin, yes. Genuinely too many names. Oh, probably, probably my personal favorite is Chris Tucker. Just going to say, uh no evidence that Jackie Chan was ever implicated just that's true not there. that's true i've always wondered do you think that Jeffrey Epstein bullied Kevin Spacey for uh, you know his chase, his taste in sex workers
0: let's just hold that for a second if you just go and like getty images and like just type in Ghislaine maxwell there's like millions of photos of her with like so many hollywood a list celebrities cuz she always had these parties like after oscar parties and shit just like for these people to come in and like photographers like take photos of them and like, this was all done basically just like, if I go down, so many of you are going to have to answer for what I did. You know, that is what happened. As soon as Jeffrey Epstein went down, like all these people all of a sudden had like questions about their involvement with Epstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, this is a spoiler for the second season of True Detective, but it's not a huge spoiler. We find out the murder victim, Ben Casper, one of the things he's doing is he has a house that he's providing for wealthy clients to have sex with prostitutes. And in that house, he has a hidden camera that's recording everything. So he has a hard drive filled with, you know, these wealthy men having sex with prostitutes and using that as blackmail. And we also found out um, during the Jeffrey Epstein trial is that um, Jeffrey Epstein had hidden cameras all over his various estates. And he had stacks of DVDs with like famous people's like names on them. And the idea is that these are like blackmail discs.
1: Absolutely. I yeah, don't no, no. I should say here. We don't know for sure, like, what exactly was on those tapes. I've seen some speculation that it might have simply just been, like, in quotes, normal child pornography. It was certainly something disgusting and something certainly illegal. Obviously, it certainly implicated Jeffrey Epstein himself. The question was, is it possible that content on those tapes implicated other people he was involved with?
0: I mean, I'm not sure about this. I've heard they were named with, like, these rich people's names on them.
1: We actually don't know who's, uh, who, who the names were. That's the thing. Uh, it's. I will say it certainly could be true because uh, the NYPD never followed up on this.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that's in the ether, but it's like one of those things you can't verify. So it's just going to drive you nuts, like thinking about it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: But um, we're not here to talk about Epstein. You know, just like a fucking Netflix doc- documentary series about Epstein. Go watch that if you want to like learn more about it. But um, this is not an Epstein podcast. This is a movie podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which I guess kind of some overlap there.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about people make movies. All right. This would be. The perfect segue, start talking about Kevin Spacey. But because I don't want to end up dead like all Kevin Spacey's victims, we're not going to talk about Kevin <laughs> Spacey. No. We're going to talk about somebody else.
1: Someone who's in a similar kind of position, you could argue. Although potentially much better off. Someone who has never really been the subject of as much scrutiny as Kevin Spacey and who has never had anywhere near the amount of career ramifications. As Kevin Spacey.
0: Content warning: We're talking about Brian Singer, and there's an article on the Atlantic from 2019, just interviewing various Brian Singer victims, like throughout the years.
1: Yeah, and, and, and so this is this is not speculation here. You know, like we were for, for the Epstein stuff, we were kind of you know sh- shooting the shit, whatever. This is uh, this has been reported already. This is this is not our, us claiming anything that has not already been alleged.
0: Also, he worked with Kevin Spacey on The Usual Suspects, which is funny. My impression is that. Even though we think, like, old Hollywood people are pedophiles, there's still parties that some people go to and some people don't. Oh, yeah. So, like, even though Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer, we learn, are basically the same person. Or <laughs> <We're>
1: both, yeah. <laughs> we both have, I guess, a penchant for teenage boys.
0: Yeah, Kevin Spacey's always hanging out with Epstein, and Singer is doing his own thing.
1: And uh, the British royal family, of course.
0: Yeah. Even though all these groups are basically doing the same thing, it's not like Eyes Wide Shut, where like all oh, these rich people are get together and room together. No,
1: yeah, yes. It's
0: not Bohemian Grove, it's none of that. They all have their own social circles. So Yeah, yeah. They are doing the same thing, but they're not doing it with each other.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The reason I kind of wanted to like bring up this article and discuss it is again, minus spoiler. In the show, one of the people who attends, you know, the prostitution party thing that happens is a Hollywood director, you know, like it's a show set in LA. Of course, they're going to have like a movie set. It's like one of the places they go to, you know, they go and interview some people like Ben Casper, the victim, invested some money into this movie, which is a thing that like um rich businessmen in LA do all the time It's you know, especially corrupt people, you know, you have to diversify your assets. So one way to do that is to invest in a movie. Yeah. So, you know, that's like hiding where your money comes from and also potentially making you more money. The movie's a hit. So this is what Ben Casper was doing. This is why he was rubbing shoulders with a Hollywood director. And this is why, um, you know, a Hollywood director is implicated in this uh, prostitution ring that we slowly uncover throughout the season. Yeah. And this is why I want to talk about a Hollywood director who's into this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So this is an Atlantic article from March 2019. Nobody's going to believe you. Around the time Singer was finishing Apt Pupil and about to begin directing the first Exxon movie... He invested in a Hollywood startup, Digital Entertainment Network, that would eventually end in scandal. Singer contributed $30,000 and pledged $20,000 more, according to the records kept by the founding CEO, Mark Collins Rector. Collins Rector's idea for digital entertainment was to produce TV shows and movies for 14 to 24-year-olds, with an emphasis on stories for gay teens, and distribute them online. Collins Rector had arrived in Hollywood in the mid-90s with his much younger business partner and lover, Shackley, who had been about 16 when he'd started dating Collins Rector, who was 32.
0: This age gap, I know it's problematic, but they're going to get worse as we go on.
1: <laughs> oh god, yeah. Collins Rector had already founded and sold several tech companies for tens of millions of dollars, and he was able to raise more than $60 million for DEN within two years. Corporate investors included Microsoft. NBC, Dell, and Chase Capital Partners, along with Brian Singer, some of Hollywood's most powerful executives and filmmakers, also checked in.
0: So this is exactly what I was saying: is um, these rich guys throwing money in like this Hollywood stuff just like diversify their investments? So of course, Microsoft, Dell, whatever, like investing in like this. Which we're gonna find out what the fuck this is, but it is not like a legit movie making startup. Yeah, no, no. I know some people are still ambivalent towards Bill Gates. Here's an example. Very clear example of Microsoft money invested in something that is not above board.
1: On paper, DEN was a forward-thinking idea, but according to a series of lawsuits and a federal investigation, the company's Encino Mansion became a party house where teenage boys were given alcohol and drugs, encouraged to have sex with older men, and in some cases raped. One early, senior-level DEN employee remembers asking why so many teenage boys were on the payroll, and being told that they did computer work. The employee also recalls attending a company party and seeing teenage boys filling into a movie theater in the Encino Mansion. The employee tried to go inside, but was stopped by a bodyguard who
0: said, "Kids only." Yeah. So, I mean, they're kids. They're good at computers. What do you want? Right? But,
1: that, you know, that reminds me of uh, the Lincoln Project. You know, which uh, tried to, you know, that group to make Republicans support Biden. Uh, they got caught a few months ago for. Um, having some kind of you know tech intern program where they hired all these teenagers, and then it turned out that their founder was trying to bang them.
0: And this also kind of reminds me of the Vernon City case, where the cover is so incredibly flimsy, but it's just like nobody's looking into this. Somebody does look into this eventually, but I am flabbergasted that it took so long for this to fall apart.
1: It was at a DEN gathering that the man we're calling Andy first met Brian Singer. According to Andy's account, he entered the DEN orbit in 1997, during his freshman year of high school, when he started chatting online with Collins Rector, who was by then 37. Collins Rector boasted that he had a private jet and suggested that they meet. The next day, Andy said Collins Rector sent a cab to pick him up in front of his apartment complex in Las Vegas and bring him to one of the biggest casinos in the Strip. Andy says he stayed with Collins Rector until that night, and they had oral sex. Andy was 14.
0: This guy was just, like, in a chat room and flies out this 14-year-old to, like, meet him and have sex with him. And it's just, like, he definitely tried to do this on a lot more people. And this is just, like, the only kid that actually went through with it. But, so, yeah, there are sexual predators online. Like, you know, protect your kids.
1: Absolutely. You know, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, that summer, Andy began taking an all-expense-paid trip to visit Colin's director. One night, Andy, who was now 15, got talking with Singer. Who led him away from the other men in the living room up a flight of stairs? He said he and Singer talked about what grade he was in. Brian knew I was 15, Andy said. Singer was 31. As Andy tells it, he and Singer weren't alone in the bathroom. Singer had brought along Brad Renfro, the starved apt pupil, who was now 15. According to some sources, Singer actually referred to Renfro, 15, as his boyfriend. Renfro sat sheepishly next to the waterbed, looking unsure of what to do while Singer and Andy fooled around. Clothes came off, but Renfro didn't move. I remember wanting Brad to join in, and he said, I don't think Brad was gay or even bi. I think he was just going with the flow. We talked about it. Like me, he looked around at all the things the guys had, the money. Maybe he thought they are going to do good things for him. In 2008, Renfro died of a drug overdose. He was 25.
0: Yeah. If you're unfamiliar with this guy, he was like a child actor. I, I remember, I've seen him in a couple of movies, like, The Cure was one. Um, The other one's like um, The Adventures of Huck and Finn. It's like, you know, one of those kids movies, but he wasn't as big as like um, Corey Haim, but he was like on that level, like a, a pretty like popular child star in these like kids movies. I mean, you have this bankable star, you have like people around him who's supposed to like protect him, you know, it's your job to like, make sure he stays out of trouble. And this is the job that they were doing.
1: Yeah, Andy says he slept with Singer a handful of times after that. One night in 1999, he met up with Singer in Las Vegas. They took a long walk. I showed him where all the gay bars were, Andy recalls. It was awkward. He had another couple boys with him, and no interest in me.
0: He's just like going through these kids, like as soon as they reach like 16, done. Yeah,
1: yeah. He absolutely has a type. Meanwhile, Andy was falling apart. He had started prostitutioning himself and took dumb meth. He missed 53 of the first 60 days of school in his junior year and was expelled. He did jail time. He even appeared in porn films. In his late 20s, several, this is quite a bit after that, Andy was caught dealing drugs and faced nine years in prison.
0: Yeah, so very clear what happened. He got sexually abused, fucked him up mentally, and then he went to drugs, skipped school, and...
1: Absolutely. And, and pornography, which uh, honestly really reminds me of the... Back to bringing this to the start of this episode, the two sisters from True Detective, how we have one sister who becomes a drug addict, and another sister who is also on drugs and also becomes involved in online sex work.
0: So we're clear, uh, the sisters were Rachel McAdams and her sister.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, as we know, this young man, Andy, was not the only victim of Ryan Singer.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about a couple other victims, but this article is really long. There's like 10, 15 people.
1: I'll just read one line here, which I think just I, I think just kind of sums up uh, this in general. Here's a young man uh, who goes by Scopek. Skopek was 18 in 2013 when he moved to L.A., just not long before this show was originally produced, hoping to launch a music career. Shortly after, a friend brought him to a Halloween party where he met Brian Singer. He says that he and several other young men did Molly and all had sex with Brian Singer. Skopek said Singer used to call him his favorite late-night snack, and Skopek felt certain the director liked him because he looked very young. You know, because he was an adult at the time, but it seems clear that he still really fit the type. Scopic says Singer told him he could help him with his career, dangling an X-Men audition over him. However, he never actually got the audition. Two of Singer's friends recounted a twenty sixteen New Year's Eve party they attended, at which Singer grabbed his much younger boyfriend by the hair and dragged him down the hallway. We all regarded it, one of his friends said, as just another Brian Singer
0: moment. And if you're wondering what happened to that startup, flush with uh, Microsoft Money, that is uh, just essentially a sex house for teenage boys, in 2000s, the main guy, the CEO, Collins Rector, got hit with charges for transporting a minor across state lines for the purpose of sex. Which is, you know, it is not Andy that could be talked to first, but it is like another kid, because he was doing this to multiple kids.
1: Somebody else. Yeah.
0: He did the Polanski thing of uh, fleeing the country, but instead of Polanski... Went to France. This guy went to Spain, and uh, the Spanish government was like not too pleased to have him here, so they just like threw him back out to the United States, where he like actually faced jail time. So that's nice. But yeah, that company then obviously like shut down. Our good friend Brian Singer somehow did not get implicated in any of this, even though he was an investor, he was at the parties, he was having sex with young boys in the house at the uh, parties. No,
1: yes, yeah. Brian Singer, for the record, has suffered no legal consequences. Uh, his career did take a really strong hit after Me Too. This is when these allegations started coming out in 2018 and 2019. He uh, he had many allegations since the 90s, including the lawsuit as early as 1997. An extra on the film Apt Pupil allegedly um, was asked to get naked, which is, yeah, awful stuff. But uh, no, he, he has not suffered any strong consequences. All that's happened is that he lost a few film jobs.
0: Yeah, his last movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Queen Movie... His name, I think, was removed, like he was fired and his name was removed, but it's still his movie and it's still won like a Golden Globe and, you know, like...
1: And uh, yeah, no, that's correct. The now forgotten Marvel movie Dark Phoenix, he also had his name removed from that, that he produced.
0: Yeah, and it's it's weird to me because I remember these allegations floating in the air when like um, X-Men Days of Future Past came out, and that was like, what, 2015? This was like a, a decent time ago. yeah, yeah, no' it's, it's, it's been a while allegations floating around, people saying like Brian singer raped me, he's still getting directing jobs I it was like his career was not dampened into like me too. No, no, no. one last thing is um obviously you mentioned Kevin Spacey before. I don't know how to, what to make of this, but it feels like the public in general only has room in their heads for like a handful of these guys. So you have like Kevin Spacey, you have Harvey Weinstein. But then, even though Brian Singer was doing the exact same shit, possibly even worse, and there's, like, very, like, detailed evidence that he was, he just does not get thought of in, like, those conversations at all.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, he doesn't. He he does, again, he seems to have lost his career, which, like, good, but... um, He
0: hasn't lost his money.
1: No, he has not lost his money. He has not suffered any strong consequences, and there's no indication to believe that he has stopped abusing teenage boys like this.
0: Yeah, he's still attending those, uh hollywood parties as seen in true detective season two and um i don't think it's ever gonna stop just like in the vernon case where you know they managed to stop one guy the thing just kept rolling along exactly it always was get kevin spacey out get brian singer out whatever you know these hollywood rape parties are still gonna keep going on the entire structure is gonna keep going along just humming nicely i forgot to mention this in um when we talked about the dc madam but there's a 83 escort services operating in D.C. So yeah, they got rid of her service. They didn't get rid of those 83 other services because, you know, they just get their head down. A lot of corrupt politicians, a lot of corrupt businessmen, a lot of corrupt, like, L.A., Hollywood elite, who are just keeping their head down and they're getting away with the exact same thing all the people were talking about.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah. And I guess I know this is like, a, yeah, the, the the reading about those uh, Brian Singer allegations, and I didn't even get into the details. They're, they're just really awful. And it really kind of just puts like a, a pit in your stomach the way that I don't, you don't even feel reading about like uh, the possible murder of a DC Adam, you know, it's, it, this seems much more, just much more heinous and just really, really awful stuff. Um, and I'm sure there's so many more cases in in, in so many industries, you know, because, like, uh, remember, like, the, the city of Vernon. These aren't, like, fancy Hollywood directors. These are just small-time industrialists, basically, doing this kind of abuse.
0: Yeah, they're just people who make, like, a few hundred grand a year, and that's enough to get you access to, like, all this shit.
1: No, yeah, no, I think what this, what this shows is that um, power lets you get away with whatever you want. And if your predilection happens to be this despicable child abuse... If you are rich and powerful, you are going to do that because you know that nobody is going to stop you. And I, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hard pill to swallow, you know, that like this many people are are willing and eager to abuse others in the most hideous way because they know they can. But yeah, that's, that, that's how the world works.
0: And that was what True Detective Season 2 is all about.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's why I will disagree with any fans of the first and third season who thought that this was too out of place. Because even though it wasn't as, you know, as spooky and mystical, even though it wasn't set in a small town in the South, it's about the same kinds of broad themes. The same ways that people, even whether it's in a small town, whether it's whether they're big Hollywood producers, whether they're the wealthiest, you know, tech CEO on the planet, or whether they're just small-time industrialists in a very shady Los Angeles town, if they want to abuse someone... They have enough power and authority that they can, and they often will. And as far as I can tell, the only way to stop that is not to, you know, catch every single pedophile, although of course they should be brought to justice, but it's to construct some kind of a social system where people like this, people like Brian Singer who want to abuse others, are not in a capacity to. And I think that until we really dramatically shake up the power distribution of society, then I think that people who are horrible abusers in the church in any institution in the government they are going to be able to abuse people
0: yeah and i think that's a perfect place to end this episode this has been gladio for europe i'm abram i was joined by liam and we're signing off